Have you ever experienced the curious staying power of a cliffhanger? Narrowly defined, a cliffhanger is a climax cracked in half. The bomb ticks, the screen goes black, a lady struggles on the train tracks, italics on the screen read, to be continued. More broadly, a cliffhanger is any strong dose of what happens next. The question that hovers in the black space between episodes. You're desperate for the next installment to see how the writer will finish the story. The delay simply adds suspense. You will return the exact same time to the exact same channel next week to see how the shocking twist unfolds. Same bat time, same bat channel. I've witnessed some really good cliffhangers. The blacklist is filled with them. Uh, the BBC series Sherlock. In it, uh, Moriarty in the last episode completely undermined the public's view of Sherlock Holmes and forced him to commit suicide by jumping off of a building. It was called the Reichenbach Fall. Dr. John Watson was devastated. In the opening episode of the next season, it's revealed that Sherlock faked his own death and, surprise, he's alive. So I've written some, some really good cliffhangers. And then I've also witnessed some really bad cliffhangers. Uh, there was a show in the 80s called ALF, and they had one in between seasons that was terrible. Uh, Friends had a few clunky ones as well. One where Ross accidentally called his fiancée Rachel during the ceremony, wedding ceremony in London, and then the episode ended. Despite the writer's clumsiness, fans still couldn't wait until season five. When done poorly, the cliffhanger is all about shoddy craftsmanship and desperate manipulation by the writer who has obviously run out of tricks. When done well, however, it can be about much more. Surprise, shock, outrage, and even joy. The sort of thing that might send you dancing off the sofa or falling on your knees saying, give me more. Cliffhangers are part of some of the silliest shows on TV and they are also key to understanding many of the greatest ones. Back in the day, the day of scheduled TV broadcasting, the gap between the season finale and the next season's premiere was always eight months. In our Netflix and Hulu generation, the gap is an accordion. It might be a week, or it might be in the second before you click the word next. Emily Nossbaum, who is a TV critic for The New Yorker, she says, Cliffhangers are, are the point when the audience decides to keep buying. In her article entitled, Tune In Next Week, she hit on brilliance when she said, cliffhangers are fake-outs. They reveal that the story is artificial, then dare you to keep believing. She continues, if you trust the creator, you take the dare and keep going. Let's have confession time. How many of you have ever experienced the red-hot guilt and shame that comes when Netflix asks you, are you still watching? <laughs> yes, I'm watching. Stop judging me. Why does the human heart love cliffhangers? It's something about living in suspense. It seems something has been put into us, an itch that must be scratched, 
a hunger that must be fed, a soul thirst that must be quenched. The human writer of Esther loves cliffhangers. It's a signature. But he's not really writing fiction. His script is based in history and can and has been verified by numerous extra-biblical sources. And each visit to the book has ended in a cliffhanger. We titled chapter 1, Living in the Shadow of the Throne. It opens with a show-and-tell day. King Xerxes is showing how rich he is, how strong his armies are, and how loved he is by his subordinates. He wanted to bring Vashti out for an adult show-and-tell, but she wasn't having it, so he had her disposed. What a wicked earthly ruler. Chapter 1 leaves us longing for a better king and a better kingdom. We are left with a cliffhanger. Will Xerxes win the war against Greece? Will anyone be able to stop this murderous king? We titled chapter 2 an international beauty pageant. The cliffhanger was answered. Xerxes took a UFC beatdown by the Greeks. The king is still powerful, but he's not going to take over the entire world. Xerxes thinks a new wife will help to soothe his emotional wounds. There's at least 400 women in the contest, one of which is named Esther. Her cousin Mordecai encouraged her to join. Mordecai adopted Esther when her parents died. He was at best a backslidden Jew, at worst a non-believing Jew. And through a bunch of R-rated scenes, Esther wins the crown by winning the bed. Chapter 2 leaves us longing for a new playwright, a perfect script, one who can redeem our sinful choices. We're left with a cliffhanger there as well. Can God use a crooked stick to draw a straight line? Will God use unholy decisions for his holy purpose? We titled our next study, A Family Feud. And this isn't, uh, this isn't necessarily rivalry week like Alabama and Auburn. This is deeper than that. Cousin Mordecai and hateful Haman revive a 1,000-year-old tribal conflict. Mordecai wouldn't shake Haman's hand, so Haman did the next reasonable thing. He ordered the genocide of all the Jews. Mordecai mourns. He looks at the edict commanded, commanding the destruction of his people, and he knows it is his fault. Then he has a Steve Urkel moment. Look, did I do that? Yes, Steve, you, you did. We discover that each man is, is really just a representative between a family feud that began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This feud isn't merely between Haman and Mordecai, it's between Satan and God. And it left us longing for one who can make sense of Holocaust, one who can comfort us in our dark days. We're left with a cliffhanger. Is there any way for the Jews to survive this edict? We titled chapter 4 last week for such a time as this. Now we've all heard sermons titled for such a time as this. They typically have nothing to do with the book of Esther. I attempted to redeem the phrase last week. It's my belief that Mordecai and Esther convert to God in this chapter. The cliffhanger is answered by Mordecai asking Esther to approach the king and request, request pardon for the Jews. She hesitates, she stutters, she quickly comes up with reasons not to act, but passivity is not an option, she must act. So she lays her yes on the table. I'm going to the king, and if I perish, I perish. 
Esther 4 leaves us yearning and longing for a perfect mediator. We're left with a cliffhanger. When will Esther approach King Xerxes? Will he have her beheaded? Will all the Jews be annihilated? And then we arrive at our portion today, chapters 5 and 6. We titled it, Once Upon a Sleepless Night. If you find yourself wanting to say to the author, Enough already! Enough with all the cliffhangers! Just tell us how this thing plays out. I understand your sentiment, but there's something you have to realize. You are built for cliffhangers. Built to live in suspense. Built to return to the writer of your story and ask, What's next? There are four movements in today's text. First, God's giving players favor. Secondly, God's waking people up. Thirdly, God's moving pieces around. And fourthly, God's making his people strong. The first one is going to be long and the other three are going to be shorter. We'll take them one at a time. First, God's giving players favor. Notice verse 1. On the third day, Esther. Now the third day indicates the third day of the fast. One scholar says the fast would have lasted from the afternoon of the first day until the morning of the third day. So 40 to 45 hours. And the third day in Jewish tradition symbolized a sign of deliverance. In Genesis 22, Abraham experienced his third day. In Genesis 31, Jacob experienced his third day. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, there is a promise. After three days, God will restore his people. A Jewish midrash on this particular scene says Israel is never left in dire distress more than three days. We know this from the Jonah story. He's in the belly of the fish for three days. When Jesus preached the Jonah story, he said that the three days were significant. They were a road sign pointing to three specific days that he will experience. In other words, the three days in Esther point to the three days of Easter. Esther's story is a shadow of one to come. Esther waited three days to leave her chambers and attempt to save her people. Jesus waited three days to leave his tomb and successfully saved his people. In our text, Esther's mouth is dry. She's physically weak from not eating and she's preparing to go into the king's throne room. Verse 1 tells us she chose to wear her robes. This is not her bathrobes. This is her royal robes. They're not tattered and torn, but gold adorned. She wraps herself in Phoenician purple, heavy with gold embroidery. She hasn't been in the king's presence for over a month. She's been losing favor. Other women have caught his eye. He caught the seven-year itch two years early. Out with the old and in with the new. She's attempting to rekindle the fire in the marriage. And Esther, for some reason, did not request a meeting with the king. You see, people could send a message to the king and request an audience. If he denied it, no big deal, you keep your head. But if you show up and he denies you, off with your head. So why isn't Esther requesting a meeting? It's possible that she would have had to state her business in advance and likely state that business to Haman. So she'll take the risk of appearing without an appointment. 
Previously, Vashti risked her life by refusing to appear when the king summoned her. Now Esther risked her life by appearing before the king before she is summoned. Verse 1 tells us she's standing. Notice, we'll pick it up in the middle. She is standing in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne. According to historical records, this is a magnificent throne room with 36 pillars standing 65 feet high. For comparison, this is a full-scale replica of the Parthenon in Nashville. These Doric columns stand 34 feet high. So imagine 65 feet high columns surrounding the king's throne. And it was entirely designed so that whenever you stood in the room, your view was not obstructed looking at the king. Watch what happens as the king spots her in all her royal finery as she's framed perfectly in the doorway. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court. Now this is it. Will she be axed or will she survive? The verse continues. She won favor in his sight. Now that was, that just seems a little too easy. In fact, going back several centuries, Bible scholars have been puzzled by such an immediate favor with the king. There was just no way that Xerxes would have interrupted the business of the court, allowed it to come to a screeching halt and violate Persian protocol. But that's exactly what happened. And notice what the king says to her in verse 3. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. The king is charmed with her beauty and his royal word was given, do not deny her anything, up to the half of my kingdom, which was like 1.5 million square miles. It's quite an offer. But this expression, however, was an idiom commonly used by ancient royalty and was not intended to be taken literally. It was a formality. I'll give you an example. Uh, there was an occasion where John the Baptist suffers because the king made the similar statement. The king said to a certain woman, you can have anything you want up to the half of my kingdom. And the young woman actually says, no kingdom, just give me JB's head on a platter. And so he did. So this was a kind of expression among kings in ancient times up to the half of my kingdom. Then notice verse 4. And Esther said, let's stop there. Now this is her chance. She, she has a chance to reveal her identity, the evilness of Haman, and they can be saved. This is her chance. Let's continue reading. And if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. I mean, how many of you are a little surprised by that request? Let's just have steak and lobster tonight and bring along Haman as the third will. What? What about all these people who are going to die? Some pastors teach this passage and they say that Esther is backing out at the last minute. She was going to spit it out, but then she lost her nerve. But I don't think so. This is her being as wise as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. In her three-day fast, God gave Esther wisdom. And rather than just launching right in with, Hi, I'm Corey Timboon and this is Hitler. I'm going to die if you don't do something. She realizes it's not the right time to speak. 
There are guards and officials standing around him, visiting bureaucrats near the throne. And if she comes right out with it, he's going to look like an idiot. You signed a decree that orders the death of your queen. If I were a woman that grew up, born and raised in Texas, I would say, you moron. That's what Texas women, you moron. And he would appear like that. So we see now a calculating side to Esther that we have yet to encounter. Previously, it's just go with the flow. Rather than demanding Haman's head, she chooses a more oblique approach. She knows a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So notice carefully the language, a banquet I have prepared. That's perfect tense, expressing completed action. The steak is already cooked medium rare. I've already laid out the banquet napkins. I've brought out the fine china. I've planned the entire night. It's ready. Just leave work and, and come. Notice verse 5. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So Haman, they go get him. Haman's wearing his, his tuxedo. He just picked it up from the dry cleaners. He's wearing his New England Patriots socks and his New York Yankees pocket square. He's the epitome of an evil empire. And as Xerxes polishes off his lobster and steak, he wipes his mouth and smiles at his queen. Curiosity killed the cat and curiosity apparently captured the king. He asked Esther for a second time, what is your request? Because I'll grant it up until the half of my kingdom. In other words, what was so important to you that you risked your life to ask me? Friends, this is it. Verse 7. Then Esther said, my wish and my request is, this is the moment she's coming out with it. If I have found favor in your sight, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, see Xerxes sit forward on the edge of his seat. Let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare tomorrow. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. She's using the delay tactic. It's a dangerous game. But to be sure, there is absolutely no way Xerxes can refuse. He has to know what her request is. If she just spewed the situation at the banquet, it would have been too soon. Because God is lining up some things to take place between the two banquets. And I want to point out, Haman loved this. A private banquet with the king and the queen. I mean, this is life. Not only did the king promote him to prime minister... He also agreed to go along with Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Now the king and the queen had invited him not to one, but to two exclusive banquets. No higher honor could have been given to any human than eating with the king. In verse, seven, the, verse 9, the meal is over and Haman leaves. He's happy. He's beaming. He's had a great night. Good conversation, good food, good wine. Maybe a little too good. He's a, he's a bit tipsy. He's stumbling down the hall, smiling and telling people, I was photographed with the king. As he rounds the corner, he spots Mordecai. Evidently, Mordecai is no longer outside the administration building wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's now inside and he's sitting at his desk. Their eyes meet. Mordecai doesn't even get up from where he's seated. In front of everybody, he brazenly insults the prime minister again. 
unafraid and untrembling, he gives the death glare. This is the final and ultimate insult to this egomaniac Haman. Everyone must grovel. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of all his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions which the king had honored him. Blah, 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 blah. What a narcissist. Pursuing only relationships he believes will increase his status. Cloaking himself in his own achievements. Fishing for compliments and validation. Even claiming other people's successes as his own. He said, I have ten kids. Who's he talking to? His wife. His wife's over there rolling her eyes. I think I know how many kids we have, Haman. Uh, I birthed them when you were, you know, sleeping. And then Haman said, and guess what I'm doing tomorrow night? Same thing. Dinner with the king, guest list of one, brag, 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 brag. But one thing still drives him nuts. Robs him of pleasure. There's still one Moth in his Persian rug. Verse 13. Notice this moth flying around. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All the gains were outweighed by one killjoy. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh, she seems like a charming lady, she said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. What a sweet lady. All night, Haman supervised the creation of the gallows. He's specific about what he wants, so he changes into his work clothes. He's got his, he's got his Carhartt gear on. And Mort will be dead on December the 13th. I mean, 10 or 11 months away. But Haman can't wait that long. He must murder him now. And he needs a gallow that matches his ego. So he builds it 75 feet high. The neighbors are asking, what is Haman building in his front yard? Is that a snowman? It doesn't look like a snowman. Whatever it is, he's going all out. I mean, this is like the Griswolds. His Christmas decorations are going to be great this year. What, what is it? It's the gallows. This is a picture of what it looks like to be 75 feet in the air and looking down. This is what Haman built in his front yard. And he's going to hang Mordecai on it. In the morning, Haman will approach the king for permission. Not a hard task. The king has already approved the murder of millions of Jews. What's one more Jew just a little bit early? Tomorrow, Mordecai dies. Hang him. And hang him high. See, Esther has received favor Haman has received favor. God's giving players favor. And then the text transports you from Haman's front yard to the king's bedroom. And that's where we find the second movement of the text. God's not only giving players favor, God's waking people up. Notice verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. In scripture, we've seen this movie before. Sleepless in Susa. What is it that kept the king awake? Precisely nothing. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was kept awake by a dream, or Darius, who was troubled over Daniel's likely fate in the lion's den, this king simply has insomnia. 
The Spurge said, he's master of 127 provinces, but not master of 10 minutes sleep. The Hebrew literally says, sleep fled from him. I call this inspired insomnia. He can't get to sleep. So what does the king do when he can't get to sleep? Does he count stars? Does he scroll Instagram? Does he take something to induce sleep? If he can't enjoy sleep, at least enjoy being awake. And he had no lack of potential entertainments. Food, drink, soothing instruments of music, dancing girls. Not to mention the enormous harem waiting at his disposal. What does the king do? None of that. He calls for a book. What book? Perhaps it was The Great Gatsby. Or Moby Dick. Or maybe War and Peace. The Odyssey. Pride and Prejudice. He'd never be that stupid. To, to Kill a Mockingbird. The Lord of the Rings, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe something light like Charlotte's Web or Peter Rabbit. No, it's none of that. He calls for the royal records. The, this Persian book kept current and ancient hero accounts from his time to his father's time to his grandfather's time. And many scholars joke about this book being as riveting as studying the tax code. However... It recorded heroic deeds of their armies, and, and I think it was quite interesting. The bedtime reader, we don't know his name, just picks a random story. Not from 50 years ago. Not from 15 years ago. But he just opens it up to one from five years ago. The king sets up on his bed, and he listens to the reader. And the reader is using inflection in his voice. He's going, loud! Then he's going soft. He's going, hi, hi. And then he's going low. And this is what he reads. One of the king's servants, Mordecai, foiled an attempt, attempted assassination when he overheard two of the king's secret service agents plotting the king's murder. Mordecai quickly informed the king's wife, Esther. Esther informed the king and the king had it investigated and it was proven true. The king leaps out of bed. How have I not heard this? How could I forget about this? Wow, my wife's been faithful to me. And this fellow Mordecai, man, he's been faithful to me. Reader, who is he? Well, he works right down the hall from the Oval Office. You pass him like five days a week. I've, I've never seen this cat before. Verse 3, and the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The servant, he, he scans the next few paragraphs and then he responds, nothing. Nothing has been done for him. And this is out of character for the Persian customs. Xerxes had already rewarded faithful admirals with plots of land, five acres here, 20 acres there. He had made another man governor of Cilicia for saving the life of his brother. Xerxes' father and grandfather had rewarded faithful citizens with jewelry and garments. His great-grandfather, Cyrus, had given a loyal general a horse with a gold bridle and a solid gold dagger. See, this was an embarrassment to the king, and he needed it rectified immediately. 
God's giving players favor, God's waking people up, and God's moving pieces around. So the writer has this story going on over here. Haman building the gallows, sort of like an evil Bob the Builder. And then he has this story going on over here, the king sleepless in Susa. And the two stories are going on simultaneously, but in verse 4, he will bring the two together. The text says, the king requests, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. Haman's so eager to kill Mort that he just shows up early in the morning to the king's palace. Normally at this time, there would have been no one in the courtyard. But Haman wants to be the first in line. No eggs this morning, sweet Zeresh. Just a cereal bar. I'm going to the office early. I've got some business to take care of. Verse 5, And the king's young men told them, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? This is the first time in the book of Esther that we are told what someone is thinking. Notice the next words. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And the writer stops. He ends the story just right there mid-sentence, and he puts on a song. The song goes like this. You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you, don't you? Notice Haman's response. There is no here if it pleases the king or if the mystery man has found favor in your eyes. He just forgets all the pleasantries and like a child at Christmas who rips the wrapping paper off and seizes the presents without thinking, Haman just jumps the gun. He's had his Christmas list already printed out. He doesn't think twice about it. He says... First, you should give him a royal robe. Not a royal robe, your royal robe. And your personal horse. And let a noble official lead this man through the city, proclaiming, this is the stud muffin whom the king delights to honor. See, here's a window into Haman's heart. He's salivating in pride. He doesn't just want a plane ticket. He wants a ride on Air Force One. He doesn't just want the king's jersey. He wants the sign jersey that he wore in war. And let me just take a sidebar here and just back out from the story just a little bit. Just zoom out. Haman didn't ask the wrong thing. He asked the wrong king. Next, we have the most comic verse in the Bible. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to... Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Man, I wish I could see Haman's face. I mean, he is madder than a mosquito in a mannequin factory. I want you to see that God is, God is giving players favor. God's waking people up. God's moving pieces around. And God's making his people strong. I wonder what Mort was thinking with hateful Haman stomping towards him. Perhaps with an army of soldiers in tow. I mean, I'm sure he thought, this is it. I'm going to die. He's going to kill me right here in front of God and and all y'all. And Haman says, I'm here with an order from the king. And Mordecai's just getting his neck ready. Do what you got to do. 
And Haman says, you're being honored for saving the king's life five years ago. A little Grinch smile sweeps across Mort's face. Haman gently drapes the kingly robe over Mordecai. He then saddles Mort on the king's horse and takes him through the streets, shouting at the top of his lungs, Mordecai is the hero. Mordecai is the man. Mordecai doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the world down. Everybody's cheering. But the text doesn't seem to give that Mordecai was impressed by this at all. But that's probably preaching the gaps. Zeresh looks out the window and looks below and she sees her husband Haman parading Mort through the streets. And she says, wait a minute. Mordecai is supposed to be on the gallows, not on the horse. See, Haman ends up not only not killing Mordecai, but publicly honoring him. And Mordecai has gone from sackcloth and ashes to splendor. And Haman is going from splendor to sackcloth and ashes. He flees the house thoroughly, thoroughly mortified, and he's hiding his face. He sulks in front of his wife and friends. Verse 13, the, the full extent of Haman's miscalculation begins to unfold. Cue his wife, Zeresh, as delightful as ever, with words of cold comfort. Oh, dude, you are going down. This can't be good for you. It can't be. And then what happens next is, I'll, I'll tell you next week. It's a little cliffhanger. But until then, let me give you three quick applications. Application number one, guard against pride. Haman is prideful. I've been resisting for four weeks diving into pride, but I'm resisting no longer. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. See, lust may lead a man to sleep with a woman to satisfy those lust desires. But pride may lead a man to sleep with a woman to show others that he can. And once others view him as capable, he is satisfied. The woman doesn't satisfy, the approval satisfies. See, it's the sin behind the sin. Haman is already the prime minister. He's basically second in command. But he doesn't care about the position. He wants to be viewed a certain way. See, pride is the petri dish that grows all types of nastiness. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. You don't see it killing you. Augustine said that pride is a mother who is pregnant with all other sins. In other words, all sins come out of pride. So is your heart pregnant with pride or is your heart pregnant with humility? Which one is your heart giving birth to? Well, let's look at some actions. Are you easily offended? That's a mark of pride. Are you hard to offend? That's a mark of humility. And it will serve you well in life. You'll be able to serve in many places. Are you involved in an e endless ego calculation? Always adding things up? How am I looking? Do you crave attention, honor, recognition, reward? And do you get angry when you're overlooked? That's a Haman problem. You're Haman. Do you have a pattern of lying about or hiding your failures? See, for a child, it would look like receiving a bad grade at school and throwing it away. And then receiving a good grade and bragging about it to mom and dad. On an adult level, do you do that? 
See, pride is about my glory and humility is about God's glory. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, said, Once the question of glory is settled, everything is settled. When you decide who gets the glory, that makes 99% of the decisions in your life. Will I do this or do that? Well, which one brings the most glory to God? That? I'll do that. The question of who gets the glory clarifies everything. So my plea to you is guard against pride. Application number two, learn to laugh. Jewish scholars learn to laugh. This book is a good example. I mean, Esther provokes belly laughing. It's just hilarious, the twists, the turns. And one of the strange hallmarks of the book is that it mixes laughter with fear. Lord Byron, who lived in the 17th and 18th century, said, If I laugh at any mortal thing, it's that I may not weep. See, Jews learned that kind of laughter. Esther begins a tradition of Jewish humor. It's often said that God has a sense of humor. Usually when we say that, we're referring to some ironic twist of providence, some unexpected consequence that taught us the very lesson we needed to learn at precisely the time we needed to learn it. The path to joy may wind through swamps of suffering and despair. But you have to remember, God loves to surprise his children and make them laugh and delight at the discovery that the folly of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Learn to mingle the two together, laughing in fear. Application number three. Embrace life's cliffhangers. You know why you love cliffhangers? It's because you're living in one. You yearn for the bomb to be disabled, for the woman to be saved from the oncoming train, for you to hear cancer-free, for the marriage to be restored, for the tears to be wiped away. You long to be moved from the gallows to the horse, for it all to work out in the end. And, and this isn't merely what your imagination yearns for. It's what your heart yearns for. This fixation with cliffhangers is a window to the soul. The cliffhangers you experience in your story are defining moments where you choose to keep buying in. Where you dare to trust the creator and keep going. Charles Dickens wrote novels. Novels so complex yet so rewarding. He grew famous for his cliffhangers. In 1841, Dickens fans rioted on the dock of New York Harbor as they waited for a British ship carrying the next installment, screaming, Is little Nell dead? Is little Nell dead? Spoiler alert, she was. She's gone. She did. Although Dickens was gifted, he's not the king of cliffhangers. That title, my friend, belongs to another. God did, in fact, write a story that no human could conjure up. Jesus Christ left the palace of heaven with its glorious columns, invaded time and space, and became a man. He lived a life that you should have lived. And for sinless perfection, he was murdered. 
murdered by the evil plan of man and by the holy plan of God. They laid him in a tomb for three days. Humanity experienced the ultimate cliffhanger. The only one that could disappoint us for eternity and the only one that could save us endlessly. That cliffhanger. And it's not like Jesus Christ's followers really expected it to turn out well. None of them were waiting at the tomb for him to rise. But this cliffhanger doesn't depend on your hopefulness, your eagerness, your faithfulness, or even your genuineness. This cliffhanger depended on God. How did it end? Well, once upon a sleepless night, God raised his son to life. He's alive. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.